The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. And this week we're going to see how the church lived out their faith in a very public way. Uh, we've been studying up to this point, learning about how God prepared His people for ministry uh, and to being a faithful witness, the message that He gave them and, and the particulars of the gospel message. And the next few weeks we're going to be talking about how to do this in a practical way. And just some context where we're going to jump in here in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 23. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who has um, since been uh, converted and um, going on missionary work, he's on missionary journeys, he and his uh, ministry friend Silas have been arrested and put in prison. And so that's, what, um, that's the context of this passage here. Starting in verse 23, chapter 16. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into, in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he, baptized, and, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is God's word. What a great passage we have today to see how, how the early church practiced their faith, how they lived out their faith in the environment that they were in. Both Paul and Silas and also the jailer, we see that they were both witnesses of their faith in the context in which they lived. And instead of looking at particulars of what the gospel message is, which we have done in weeks past, today we're going to look at how the gospel message is, uh, how it changes a culture, how it's lived out in our faith, in our day-to-day -day lives. And so today we talk about the practice of the Christian faith practice of the faith. And when I talk about practice, I don't want you to think about uh, practice in the term, in the sense that we practice a sport uh, or practice uh, our, our craft, but rather the way, a, the way a doctor practices, the way a lawyer practices. You, you hope to have a, a doctor operating on you, one that's not practicing in a desire to get better, but one who's actually just overflowing in the knowledge and wisdom that he already has. And so a doctor has a practice uh, not because he, doesn't, he or she does not know what they're doing, but rather because they are demonstrating what they already have and what they already know. And in this sense, we look at how the early church practiced their faith. It was an overflow of their knowledge and conviction. It was a public demonstration of, of what they were called to do. And so we see throughout the message of Acts, we see this primary method of practice of evangelism, a primary method for how they demonstrated their faith. 
And it was in, within the uh, arena of their, their web and network of relationships that they had. You might be surprised to see that as we look through Acts, uh, the way that the church grew and demonstrated their faith, it wasn't through well-planned and oiled uh, evangelistic events or through programs or through uh, brilliant um, mailers or billboards or uh, creative social media presence. It was through the web of relationships that they had. It was, it was through their, their witness, their practice of their faith, a demonstration of their convictions and knowledge just for the world to see. And so they're very present in the world around them. They're very present in relationships uh, that God put in their life. They're very intentional with those things. And it continues to be the most effective way uh, for the gospel to spread in the church today. It is the most, it is the most uh, easy and practical and organic way for the gospel to spread, both in the early church and even today. And that's through the web of relationships in each of our lives. Our passage refers to this as the oikos, the oikos. Oikos is the Greek word to mean household. And we shouldn't use just our, our 21st century idea of household as today. Might, we, we might see it as just our you know, mom, dad, brothers, and sisters, and, and pets. That's our household. The household in, in the first century was quite different. The household included the immediate family, but it also included, it included the whole web of relationships around the family. It even included the, the, the servants and the helpers and the families of those servants that were serving in the house. It included co-workers and business partners. It included neighbors. It included this whole web of relationships within the immediate proximity of a person's life. And that was a person's household. It was their oikos. It was the environment and the arena of their lives that they, they were immersed in every single day. It was the people they saw as they, as they went through the habits of their life and routine of their day. And I'm sure you can think of some people in your oikos that is beyond just your immediate family. And so not only church history, but modern research shows that the, the vast majority of people that come to know Christianity and are exposed to Christianity and come to uh, faith in Jesus is not through these well well-planned programs of evangelism, but it's through a friend, it's through a neighbor, it's through um, a co-worker, it's through a, a mom or a dad, or even through a child. Consider how you came to know and trust in Jesus. Who exposed this news to you and, and taught you and walked with you through what it means to know Jesus? And it's not to say that these other programs are ineffective or not good. In fact, they are good and necessary but we see the, the main method of how God uses to, what he uses to advance his kingdom is through this web of relationships. It's through the oikos. And so an oikos, our oikos is the unique web of relationships in which God has placed us. And it's the primary arena for living out Jesus' call for every Christian to be a faithful witness. That's what this whole series is about, is that Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And we should ask, okay, what does that mean? What do we believe and what do we say? And when we should ask, well, how do we do that? And many of us ask that question. Okay, what does this look like? How do we do it? And that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about, starting with today. And we see in Scripture and in the book of Acts, how we do that is primarily in the arena of how we live, where we live our everyday lives. And I can't talk about oikos without talking about yogurt, right? Of course, I'm talking about the, the yogurt brand, you know, Oikos, the yogurt brand. Um, at Dannon, I, I, I really encourage you to, I'm kind of a, a yogurt aficionado, right? Uh, uh, and, um, and so the CEO says this of Dannon, Dannon Oikos. He says, we believe that every day, every decision matters. 
The role and responsibility of a business leader will be judged by our ability to lead our companies with our hearts as much as our heads. And never forget that unlike energy resources, which are limited, our people are a source of infinite power once they feel motivated. Even at Oikos, this household name, even at Oikos they see that it is through the web of relationships that people change. It is through the web of relationships where, where, where things actually happen, where power is manifested. Even secular companies recognize that, it, that dynamic influence is found in the web of relationships. And so it's so true in the secular environment. It's true because it is true of God's wisdom and nature and character that the web of relationships is, is not something that is inconsequential. It's something that's vital. What a great statement from, from a secular company on just their, their, the virtue in yogurt. And it's not even like my top three brands of yogurt. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Faye guy. You know, Faye is another word. It means eat it in Greek. It's where Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat. He's saying, Faye. Okay, now you know. Chobani? Chobani means shepherd. I mean, there's gospel in yogurt, people. It's all throughout, okay? Yoplay? That's just gibberish, actually. It doesn't mean anything. <clears throat> Two people's names put together. So, you know, I don't, that's where it ends. Maybe that's what Peter said when he says, crave the word of God like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. What he really meant was spiritual yogurt. Okay. <clears throat> yogurt jokes are done. <clears throat> there is an incredible, incredible virtue, incredible advantage to this kind of witness, this kind of evangelism. We see it throughout Acts. We see it in our passage. Not only does it make common sense, it is actually intentionally the web it's essentially the arena for which we are to be a faithful witness. Every Christian is an evangelist. Every Christian is a witness. Every Christian ought to be obedient to, to these things. And so let's look in this passage and see some advantages in our text. For starters, first advantage, well, we all have one, right? We all have an oikos. It's like a, these are like belly buttons. We all have a web of relationships. We all have a, an arena of our lives, even though it might feel small and insignificant, it is still there and very present. God has a plan for uh, and purpose for the people in your work. How do I know that? Because you work there. God has a, has a, has a love for your children, a particular love for your children. How do I know that? Because you are their parents. God has as a, as a, as a, as a desire to be a witness in your neighborhood and in your apartment complex. How do I know? Because you live on that street. You live in that, amen, and you live in that, uh, <laughs> you, live, you live in that building. God has not placed you there on accident. You're not just another number on the street. You're not just another worker in your workplace. You're not just a, a member of a family. God loves that arena. He loves that context. So he puts Christians there to be a witness in that oikos. A person's strongest relationships are with the people within their everyday routines, starting with their family and then with their coworkers and clients and neighbors and with the people they see every single day. Think of the barista at the coffee shop that you always go to. They're in your oikos. Or the people who watch your kids at the gym or a client you do business with every single week, or the neighbors on your street. These are your oikos. This is your household. 
These are the people that God has placed you in their lives. One of, the, one of the reasons why we don't share our faith is that we often feel that we don't have many opportunities. Well, how do I, where do I have opportunity to actually like be a witness? But if we consider that the people we interact with every day and the normal rhythms of our week, we will see there is no shortage of opportunity. There's no shortage of opportunity. And when we start to ask God to show us opportunity to be a witness to, to people in our lives, we will be amazed at how many things just pop up. We won't be amazed at how many people uh, come to us expressing hurt in their life and suffering. We'll be amazed at how many people are struggling in relationships and in, uh, struggling with finances and with uh, doubt for the future and fear of, 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 of present illness and things like that. We have one. This is a great advantage of Oikos evangelism. We all have one. That means every Christian is an evangelist. Here's another advantage. Oikos evangelism is more organic. And by organic, I mean it's more, we're not talking about yogurt again. I'm talking about it's, it's more related to everyday life. It's, it's related to living things. That's what organic means. It's not merely a, a transfer of information. It is, it is related to how we live every day in a natural way. And therefore, it's much more effective. Oikos evangelism allows us to, to connect the truths of the gospel to to the street level life, how we live. Many Christians cringe or dismiss, uh, you know, are dismissive at the word evangelism when they hear evangelism. It seems to point to a heavy responsibility to have a very um, polished and persuasive presentation of the gospel. Uh, it, it seems to point to leading people to a decision of conversion for Jesus. It, it seems to lead to this anxiety of, you know, that slam dunk, home run conversion. So we think of evangelism and you might think, well, well that's not for me. That's just, that causes anxiety in my life. I mean, I can't do that. There's so much I don't know about my own faith. We feel pressure in doing evangelism that we have to then, in that moment, we have to lead someone to Christ. And if we don't, then we have failed. We, we worry about being manipulative, manipulative and, and uh, sales pitchy. And because we don't know how to be non-manipulative or non-sales pitchy, we just don't do anything because we don't want to be that person. Anybody here like that? And so we don't do it. And so that leads us to be secluded in our faith, where we only talk about our faith with other Christians. Or, or it leads us to be private in our faith, where we're, we're around a lot of people who don't know Jesus, but they don't know that we know Jesus. And so we just keep it to ourselves, and, and we have our work life, and we have our family life, and we have our neighborhood life, we have our leisure life and celebration life, and then we have our Christian life, and that's, that's the arena where we are growing in our faith or learning in our faith. Because we don't know, we, 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 have, we misunderstand what it means to be an evangelist. The kind of evangelism that we're called to is the kind of evangelism that is much more connected to everyday life. Consider the scenarios in our passage. Look at Paul and Silas. They're in prison. They've just been beaten within an inch of their life. You might think that the opportunities to be a witness have closed for them. And yet we find it and we see it in the most unlikely places where they are beaten to an inch of their life. Within an inch of their life, they're in prison and they're, the threat of death is, is knocking on their door. In verse 25, it says, It was midnight, and they were praying and singing, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
Was midnight an important detail? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's nothing. But it's possible that the memory of Psalm 119 came to their hearts. That says, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I will rise and praise you. And it's possible that they are in the worst, they are, they are, within, they are in the shadow of death, and they are reminded of God's righteousness, and at midnight they rise. And they rise to do what? Even in the midst of suffering and trials, we're going to rise and we're going to praise you because you are worthy to be praised. In the time of trouble, they rise to praise God and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were watching. They did not rise. I do not believe that they rose and said, let's, let's put on a show. Let's, let's, let's pray and maybe they will... They'll see us and maybe they'll come to faith. They rose to live out their everyday faith and to cry out to God and honor Him and live out their faith in, in, in their everyday circumstance. For this circumstance, it was a bad one. But nonetheless, they rose and they praised God. Our everyday lives become the pulpit which we, which we preach our, our, a, a, a living sermon for the world to hear. Our everyday decisions and, and how we apply the hope of the gospel to our suffering and to our joys and our celebrations and to our, to our everyday life, that becomes our pulpit. The gospel becomes the message and the word that is proclaimed through the demonstration of how we apply it to the things that happen to us in our life. Many of us underestimate its power. They're singing hymns. It's in the everyday moments that we don't need to be theological experts who can relate the gospel to economics and education and social reform. We just need to point to the good news that we have. This is the reason why a lot of us never do it. We're never a witness. We're not, we're not effective witnesses in our life because we don't know how we can apply so, so eloquently and creatively the gospel to this deep and multifaceted situation. This is seen no clearer in the, evangelists, uh, the evangelism of Paul and Silas, a troubled jailer at the end of hope in life. He asks probably the most important question in the whole Bible. What must I do to be saved? And they say, uh, Jesus. That's what they say. That's the depth of their evangelism. He is saying, how does this earthquake and this jail that is now in rubble and all of these shackles have now been loosed from all the prisoners, and I am going to be killed because you guys are going to escape. Apply the gospel to that. And they say, believe in Jesus. Let's be honest, it's not the most polished evangelism. It's not the most polished message. The jails shake, the doors burst open, shackles are removed. Two of the most educated theologians of the early church, and they say, believe in Jesus. And the jailer said, okay. That's what I need. It's not most polished, but then it is. It's, it's organic, yet it's essential. It's simple, yet it's true, and it's profound. Their witness proved effective. Why? Not by their ability to articulate the complexities of the gospel and how it applied to that situation, but their readiness to apply the hope of the gospel and comfort of Christ's work to their everyday problems of life. They were effective not because they were the most skilled theologians. They were effective because they applied the gospel to their time of suffering. They applied the gospel to this, time, this man's time of need. They just pointed this person to trust in Jesus. They pointed 
to have faith in him. If you know the grace of Jesus in its most infant form, if you know that you are, are a sinner deserving of God's anger, but Jesus stepped in and died for your sins so that you would be forgiven and saved, you're an evangelist with a great message that can change the world. You have a message that will change people's lives. You have a message that will save people's lives by simply pointing to the hope that you have. It really is, in a way, that uncomplicated. Then consider the jailer, the jailer's faith witness. Consider his witness. He had an oikos. So the, the Paul and Silas had an oikos. At that time, the oikos was the jail, and the, the, the prisoners listened to them and heard them praising God and their suffering, and also the jailer heard the message of the gospel preached to him. And now the jailer has a faith witness. He has an oikos. He, his immediate family, his relatives, his neighbors, servants of his home, and perhaps other colleagues from the prison joined him. And when he became a Christian, the entire home now became a ministry center. And that's the way it happened in the, in, in the first century and, and, and many centuries after. When the head of the household became a Christian, the whole house became a ministry center. The whole house became a place of learning. It's actually God's design even still for today. To be a homes to be led by gospel leaders. A homes to be ministry centers. Nurturing their children, nurturing members of the home, being a ministry center and a place of hospitality for unbelieving neighbors and co-workers. The house was a ministry center which the gospel was taught to each and every member of the household, every employee, every neighbor. This was a natural occurrence. The jailer believes God and he is now a missionary to his entire oikos. The gospel spread most, most rapidly, not through planned preaching, but through informal conversations in homes, in coffee shops, on walks, and around the marketplace. This happened so much in early Greco-Roman world that secular historians even wrote about it. Secular historians, as they talk about the influences of the world in that time, talked about Christians, even in a, mostly in a mocking sense. They talked about them in a, in, a, in a sarcastic sense. One historian named Celsus says this, We see in private homes the most illiterate and bucolic yokels, basically calling Christians rednecks, okay, hillbillies, who would not dare say anything at all in front of their elders and most intelligent masters. But here they get a hold of whoever is ignorant as themselves and says, We know the way to live. Secular historians look at the Christian church and say, look at, these, look at these foolish people always getting together and talking about this crazy message of Jesus. They're bringing people into their homes. They're eating meals with one another. They're, they're people that are, that are completely foolish and, and that, have, that are ignorant. They're bringing the weak, the marginalized. They keep meeting with others. And so it's not just some biblical propaganda that the church is trying to, to get us to live a certain way. We believe it because it's God's word, and it's affirmed as we say, see that history affirms it. History is saying, yeah, this is what Christians do. Would a, would a reporter say that today on you know, NBC or Fox News? or Would they say, what are Christians like? I don't know. They have a crazy message, but I know they're always getting together and talking about it. 
They're always bringing in the weak and marginalized, and the, the, they're always bringing in the, the needy. Their homes are always full. They're always together. Would they say that about Christians? I know they would say that about Muslims and Mormons. Would they say that about Christians? I don't know. The most effective method of evangelism is a kind of chattering about the gospel, talking about the gospel in the midst of everyday life. It is just bringing your faith to bear on the most mundane and details of your life. Paul and Silas are in prison, and the prison becomes a mission center just because they were living out their faith. And a jailer is saved. A jailer is saved, and his home becomes a mission center. And then his whole entire household is saved. What an amazing thing. And so oikos evangelism, is, is, there's an advantage to it because it's just more organic. It's more tied to everyday life. It's a way that we can connect our hope and our faith in the gospel to just how it relates to everyday life. Another, another advantage is this. Oikos evangelism creates relational integrity. What do I mean by relational integrity? Relational integrity is something that Christians have when skeptics and non-Christians um, Non-believers believe that Christians actually have a genuine concern for them and their well-being, not just viewing them as a project. And so relational integrity is, is something that Christians gain when people on the outside of the church say, I, I think that they actually care about me. That's relational integrity. They really want to be my friend. They really care about my life. They really care about my well-being. They care about the people in my life. They have a concern for me. They're not just looking at me as a project. The early church grew explosively in the first 300 years. And this was largely without any public preaching because it was far too dangerous. Any public uh, you know, crusades and big displays of the gospel because you were killed if you did that. So it was very private. This was without um, any mission boards and sent missionaries to further places. Uh, mostly none of those. This was without any, without any papers or books written on how to live a missional life and how to do evangelism. None of that was present. And yet the church grew exponentially, explosively, in the first 300 years when they were oppressed the most. How is that possible? It grew because the lives of the Christians had genuine concern for the weak, the marginalized, the poor, and for one another. They had integrity in the face of great persecution. And people looked at this, and they were then more ready to hear the message that they had because they said, why are you doing this? This is attractive. Why are you a community like this? You are, you're risking your own lives for people that no one cares about. And then they heard their message, and their lives were changed. They shared what they had with one another, and they sacrificed for their enemies. And it was attractive to an, a world that was looking at them. And once outsiders are attractive to the lives of Christians, they become much more open to talking about the gospel truths and, and the source of their generosity to the world. There's always been a strong tendency for Christians to withdraw into a kind of closed and kind of bubble Christian community, right? There's always this tendency just to kind of withdraw from the world that, is, that seems broken and uh, threatening, but we must resist that because we are called to be a light into the world. We are called to not be, uh, be like the world. In a sense, we must live very differently from the world, and yet we are called to, to live among the, the world. We are called to love our neighbors. We are called to get to know them with, gen, with genuine concern for their well-being. I want you to notice a very big gap between 
uh, verse 31 and 32. Can you look at that as we talk, as we continue to think about relational integrity? Look at verse 31 and 32. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. It's a big gap. A lot happened in between those two verses. The first verse, 31, he's in there in a jail cell. This jailer is about to kill himself. They preach the gospel to this man. The next verse is, they are now, where's the context? They're now in the home. We don't know, we don't know what happened in, the, in between those two verses, but if we can speculate with some reasonable, you know, theory here, at some point, you would have to think the jailer said, between 31 and 32, at some point the jailer said, do you want to talk about this more? I've got a million questions. Do you want to come over to my house? We, we know that he invited him over. There has to be some point when the jailer hears this and he says, can we, can we have another meeting? Can we talk more? Can we get together again? And it's like, well, how about right now? And, and now we find them in the home talking further. We see a deeper, a, a deepening of the gospel relationship. A deeper sharing of the gospel didn't happen in a single presentation. We see that Paul and Silas just said, we'll believe in Jesus. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That's why we believe that we're saved. And then they deepen the context. They deepen the relationship. It was fleshed out in relationship as the relationship got deeper and deeper. Trust was built in the jail. They moved to the house to talk more. There was a mutual expression of friendship where the jailer washes the wounds of the prisoners. He cleans them, and Paul and Silas minister to the whole family. And then, which is interesting, it says they, they went to the house, but then they go up to the house and have a meal. So there's like this deeper place. There's this more intimate place within the house. And so the jailer is in his work, and he earns trust with these Christians. Christians gain relational integrity. He says, would you come to my house? And relational integrity is built there. And then he says, you want to come to my table and have a meal together? Probably the most intimate place in the home was the dinner table. The place where friendship was shared. The place where lives were shared. The place where, where you were vulnerable. Where you were intimate in relationship. And so we see this deepening of relationship because there was integrity. There was integrity there. This is a great benefit of this kind of evangelism that happens within the relationships that we already have. We get to have second conversations and third conversations and fourth conversations. It doesn't have to happen right at the first time. You don't have to say everything that needs to be said. You're allowed to have things unsaid that are true that maybe even be beneficial at that moment. You can trust God and say, I'm not going to say everything. I'm going to build a friendship with this person. I'm going to let them look into my life. I'm going to create a window into my heart so that they can see why I'm doing what I'm doing. The meal is the centerpiece of oikos evangelism. The meal is the one of the greatest expressions of friendship in the first century and a practice that the modern church needs to regain and reaffirm. If we desire to have relational integrity with our, the world around us, we have to open up our, our dinner table. We have to open up our homes. We need to let people into the intimate parts of our life and why we do what we do. We need to let them see how we live. And obviously that brings us to a, a thought of, well, I don't live a Christian witness. If I bring people into my life, 
they're not going to see anything about Jesus. Don't you see how it's all connected? It's not just be a good witness. Jesus is concerned about our lives. He's concerned not just about our witness. He's concerned about how we follow him. And so some people might say, well, if I follow Oikos evangelism, do you realize how much in my life has to change? And I would say, I think that's the point. Do you realize that we'd have to change our schedule to have an evening open where people can actually eat in our house? I think that's the point. Do you realize that we'd have to sacrifice so much money to buy food for people? I think that's the point. Do you, have to real, do you realize that we'd have, to just, we'd have to stop being hurried about in our lives and just grabbing, you know, like hot pockets and, and, and microwavable burritos? I think that's the point. I think that we're actually meant to labor in a kitchen and make a meal as a sacrifice of love. I think we're supposed to eat meal over an extended period of time as, a, as, a, as an expression of our gratitude. One of the most practical ways that we can express love to other people is through the meal. It is where we say, I put in work for you, and it is where we receive it and say, thank you. There's this mutual love and gratitude that happens at the dinner table. But we don't need to do that. We have Blue Apron, and we have Costco. and We don't need to, we don't need to love people. Food is not the point. It's what happens around food. We need to change our lives if we desire to be faithful witnesses. And it's not just about what we know. It's not just about a transfer of information. Well, I tell people all the time about what the gospel is, and nothing changes. Maybe they haven't seen how it's changed you. Maybe they haven't seen how it's actually disrupted your life. And if they don't think it's worth it for you to change your life, why would they change theirs? The disciples are in the cell, and their life is over. And they rise at midnight to praise God. The jailer's life is over. And now he puts his whole entire family at risk. That's how good it is. That's how much he believes in it. And, and at the end of this, he, he, you see the whole family, they are rejoicing that he believed. At some point, the jailer must say, tell me more. Uh, let, me, let me bring you in. Here's what Michael Green says uh, in his book, Evangelism in the, in the Early Church. He says, the qualities of our lives marked by evident hope, love, poise, and integrity has always been the necessary preconditions for evangelism, but this has never been more necessary than it is today. If you really are all about this whole faithful witness thing, but you don't want to open up your home and change your routine and say no to things that clutter your schedule, it's going to be very hard for you to be obedient, to be a faithful witness. And it's never been more necessary than it is today. So let me ask you to evaluate your oikos, your habits, your lifestyle, What would it look like for your home to be a mission center? Are you intentionally building friendships with your coworkers, or is is your work just a place where you just make money? Are you aware of the needs of your neighborhood, and are you working intentionally to address those needs in order to be a blessing to stranger? This goes against so much of what our culture values, because what is the culture value? Get the best job that you can get so you can make the most money that you can, so you can get the biggest house that you can to be on the street with no other houses so that you can be left alone. And for many of us and for our culture, that is success. And someone sees that, look at all the land you have, look at the house you have, you've made it. Jesus says it's upside down. Your work is an instrument to make money, 
so that you could be a blessing to others. Your home is a mission center so that lives can be changed. Your neighborhood is the main arena for the gospel to spread. And yet everything in our culture says be secluded because it's all about you. We live in an increasingly individualistic society that says you're self-sufficient, you can rely on yourself, you don't need anybody. The Christian can't do that. The gospel is, is it's opposed to that kind of thinking. Jesus desires something radically different for his church. Our work, our homes, our neighborhoods become mission centers where we just chatter about the gospel, where we bring the gospel to bear on every detail of our lives and outsiders get to see it. They're not places to blend in, they're places to stand out so that the good news about Jesus and what he did for us is told and shown. And the main way it happens is through personal relationships. The daily activities of our lives become the pulpit from which we preach a living sermon for the world to hear. So these are great advantages. We all have an oikos. We all have an oikos. We, we, uh, it's more organic. It's more a natural way to apply the gospel to everyday life. And it's here that we can actually build relational integrity. But it doesn't get, those things don't get to the heart of this passage. And here's where I want to finish our time together. We don't do this because it's just pragmatic. You know, I'm not telling you these things and looking at this passage just to say, hey guys, this is the most effective way to change lives, so let's pick the way that works. It is the most effective way, but that's not why we should do it. We do it because it embodies the good news for what Jesus did for us. In those days, if you were a jailer and a, jail, and a, and a prisoner escaped, uh, by law you were executed. And so the jail is broken down, and it's dark, and the jailer walks in, and he thinks that, the, that all the prisoners are gone. And he takes out his sword to kill himself. Because he felt he was without hope. He felt his days were over. Um, he wanted to save himself from public humiliation, and so he's about to take his own life. Now imagine you're in the jail cell as a prisoner, and the doors miraculously burst open. And it's dark, your shackles are broken free, and it's quiet, and a jailer rushes in, and he can't see you, but you can see him. And he's about to kill himself. What are you going to do? You're going to say, be quiet. We're about to be free. Right? Don't move a muscle. We're about to get out of here. Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And all the prisoners are like, come on, man, what are you doing? Okay, I want you to think logically about what's happening here. This is the perfect time to think about yourself. This is the scenario you've been waiting for that you didn't think could happen, a miracle. You escape, your freedom is served up on a silver platter, your freedom is given to you, but it must come at the expense of another person. Your freedom comes at the expense of this jailer killing himself. And the only way you can be free is if he takes his own life. He dies, but you get to go free. Do you yell out to get his attention, or do you say nothing? I bet you say nothing. Paul cries out with a loud voice. Paul gives up his, he, he blows his cover. Paul does the most unreasonable thing for a prisoner to do. He had a chance to be free, and at the expense of the jailer's life, but instead he chooses to risk his own life, because now... The jailer now knows he's there. 
the jailer's going to lock them all back up. The jailer's going to maybe even execute all of them. At once, the jailer falls down and cries out, what must I do to be saved? What's happening here? What's really going on? The jailer has now seen two remarkable things from these Christians. One, the Christian's joy in the midst of suffering. Don't underestimate the arena of your life that is laden with suffering and how it could be a great arena for the gospel to shine so bright. This jailer sees Christians praising God in the midst of suffering. People don't do that. Second thing he sees is Christians repaying evil for good. They are jailed unjustly. They, offenses have been done against them. They have done nothing wrong, and they have been beaten to an inch of their life, and they are thrown in prison, and their lives are most assuredly over. So when he says, what must I do to be saved? It's, he might as well be saying, you obviously have something that I am missing. You have a joy in the midst of suffering that I can never have. You have a generosity in the midst of injustice that is completely unreasonable. And given an opportunity to go free, and for, at my death, you extend, instead you exchange it. You exchange your freedom for mine. What is wrong with you? It's as if to say, when he says, what must I do to be saved? It's as if to say, what do you have that I don't have? That's why the disciples say, believe in Jesus. He doesn't give him a system or organization to help him live a better life. He simply urges him to have faith in Jesus. And then they explain what it means to him and his family over a series of encounter, over a meal, over several hours likely. And in verse 27, in verse 27, the jailer is ready to kill himself. I want, can you see this? It's, it's, it's graphic and brutal. The jailer is about to commit suicide in verse 27. And in verse 34, he is around the dinner table praising God. Can you see the bookends of this? Do you see how meaningful this is? How is it possible? It's only possible through the gospel. He was a man like everyone else that lived in a world that was frantically pursuing pleasure and significance and success. And the gospel gave him a different story to live by. Because when he saw that his job was over, his life was over, his dignity was over, he had nothing else to hope in and he wanted to kill himself. We live in a culture that is increasingly a culture without hope. The Center for Disease Control just published a report this week, maybe you have seen it, about suicides in the U.S. Suicides rates have increased in almost every single state in the U.S., by more than 20 or more than 30 percent in the last 20 years. In some states, it has increased more than 50 percent. Over half people that take their life have no prior evidence or any previous issues with mental, mental health. We fear the future because of potentially military conflict. We feel the, fear the future because of global warming and changes. We, we fear financial instability and new diseases that come out every day. There's so many things to be afraid of, so many things that want to take away our hope. And a culture has given us a multitude of things to drown out our worry. Form, new forms of technology, new forms of relationships, new, vo, new vo, vacations, new kinds of retirement and so many other things. The world says, if you're worried and have lost hope, here, busy yourself with these things. It'll make you better. We seek to be distracted in our lives 
but find no real relief. And the gospel gives us something incredibly different. The gospel tells us that we were the ones that were about to fall on our own sword. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, don't hurt yourself, I'm here. The Bible tells us that we are the ones that have no hope and have no life. But God steps in and says, I'm here. I'm here for you so that you will never be alone. Paul's gracious cry to the jailer saved his life at risk of his own. And in crying out, Paul risked his life and the life of everyone around him. Jesus' life-giving cry on the cross as he died for us gives way to our rescue. If he had said nothing and done nothing, then we would fall prey to our own swords. We would die the death that we walked right into. But Jesus' cry on the cross gives way to our rescue. I want to say, if, if you have ever contemplated suicide, if you are considering harming yourself in any way, even now, as a way of rescuing yourself from suffering and lack of hope, I want you to know there is hope. There is a Jesus who does not remain silent in our suffering, but he cries out and says, I'm here. He took the sword for you. When we were wanting to take the sword on ourselves, he takes the sword for you. That's how much he loved you. That's how much you are not alone. You're not without hope. He is here. And God is willing, more willing, to give his own life of his own son and make his own son take the sword so that he would never be without you. It's true. The jailer saw this incredible hope and he was captivated by it. His life was changed by it. He sees, the str- he sees that the struggles with death and suffering were supported by a hope and comfort that came only through Christ that the world could not offer. You have to imagine that the topic came up as they were talking and walking where the jailer said, possibly through tears, why did you do that? You knew what was at stake. Why didn't you save yourselves? And the answer is this, because we don't need to save ourselves at the expense of someone else's life because our life has already been saved at the expense of someone else's life. He believed and would have said, I don't need to protect myself and save myself because I've already been saved at the expense of the life of Jesus. That's how we get hope. That's how we are saved. Once we were imprisoned by our own sin and now we're set free by the righteousness of Christ. Once we were enemies of God, but now we are called his friends. Once we were strangers and foreigners, and now we are citizens of heaven. And once we were orphans, and now we are part of God's oikos. We're part of his house. We are called sons and daughters of God. We are a part of a home and a household that is imperishable, that will never be overthrown or overtaken. We are a part of a house that is good and loving, We're adopted into his family. What an amazing demonstration of the gospel that these men were able to show. And in the washing of the wounds, they were able to demonstrate this mutual love for one another, where the jailer washes the wounds and the stripes on their back from the whips that they endured. And the disciples are able to wash the jailer by baptizing him as a sign of Jesus' washing away of his sins. What an amazing demonstration of sacrificial love. 
what an amazing opportunity you and I have. And he and his whole family rejoiced in the, that he believed in God. Not merely that he believed and received these intellectual facts about what it means to be a Christian. He trusted God. He rested in God. He believed that his deepest longings were met in what Jesus did for him. Not in his work, not in his success, not in his circumstances, but in Jesus. You see, we engage in this kind of faithful, all-of-life witness, not because it's effective, it is effective. We do it but because we have a light. We are able to have a light in a world that increasingly says, in so many ways, there is no hope in the future. We live in a culture that is, is more and more coming to terms with the fact that, yeah, there's no hope in the future. Get what you have. Get what you can right now. And those who see that they don't have what they want, they become hopeless, depressed, anxious for what the future holds. The church at its finest followers of Jesus at their finest. They are at their finest when, when it is telling a different story from the rest of the world. The church is at its best when the words like suffering and failure and poverty are not hopeless words, but they're redeemable words. Redeemable because Jesus took the sword for us. Let's be those kinds of people. Let's pray.